Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Madison Pierce returns. We talk first about Trinitarian readings of Scripture. As two people who have done this work in our dissertations and in other places, we thought it might be helpful to give some tools, some handles, some different ways of seeing the Trinity in the Bible and how to read the Bible through a Trinitarian lens. So I hope that's helpful for you as you think through those issues. We also talk a little bit about what it's like to be an academic in publishing. What does it mean to publish academic works? What should we think about if you're a seminary student, a PhD student, or even a professor who is thinking about publishing, thinking about getting a job in academia? What are some things to think about, both from technical perspective on what you're writing and also character and how you should network and how you should talk to people? Just some thoughts and advice from us, by no means infallible thoughts or advice, but things that we've been through. We just wanted to reflect on that a little bit as a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in that position. So I hope that's helpful for you as well. As always, we're brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out more about their latest offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about their latest study Bibles and commentaries and other works that are coming out from that Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Madison Pierce. But first, the man, the myth, the legend, no big Dill. All right, Madison Pierce is back. We are going to talk about Trinitarian readings of biblical passages today, or at least that's the plan that we're going to try to talk about. As usual, Madison and I um, decide about 10 minutes before we start recording what we're going to talk about. So people seem to like it. So I don't, I don't know if it's helpful or not, but people, maybe they just enjoy banter. At some point we'll run out of ideas, but unless y'all start sending them, really, really flood Brandon's inbox as much as you can. That's true. About, you can... about you know, stuff related to me mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Just email mpierce at uh, tiu.edu and they'll come right to me. Yeah, wow. so we'll, we're going to see if we can talk through uh, some biblical passages today. Both of us have done Trinitarian readings of stuff. We've danced around this in different ways, I think, throughout podcasts that we've done. Uh, and also, we might talk a little bit at the end about um, academic publishing, both as people who are publishing in academia. Uh, I've worked on sort of the other side of publishing. And every time we talk about writing or publishing or things like that on the podcast, people seem to enjoy it. So somehow in all of this ranting that Madison and I are about to do uh, without any uh, formal outline or plans uh, will hopefully be interesting. What do we want to do? We want to start talking through one of the things we had batted around a little bit is the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is one of those passages that I get asked a lot uh, from students about that. What does it actually mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I've heard different proposals of what that might mean. Some that are, you know, kind of deeply Trinitarian, some that are sort of dismissive. So you worked on this a little bit, even in your um, book on Hebrews, Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Is that correct? Is that the correct title? That is correct. Good job. You talked about that a little bit in yours. It's sort of tangential, but still kind of fits in with, with what you were doing. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch it to you first. And okay. so let's talk through a little bit of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the role of the Spirit, kind of how you engage some of that work. And then I've got some work I'm working on that's similar as well. So we can maybe start there and see where it goes. Yeah, I can tee it up. So it may be surprising that that would come up in my thesis on God speaking in Hebrews. But one of the things that I do is the the spirit chapter is, is in, in some ways the red herring, because not only do I just 
talk about the speech descriptively, but I also have to substantiate it because the spirit's role in Hebrews has really been questioned quite a bit. And whether his speech is parallel to the speech of the father and the son is something that people have frequently questioned. And so what I'm trying to do is to show that the way that the author portrays the spirit actually fits with other New Testament characterizations of the spirit. And so it makes perfect sense that we would allow this to be you know, really um, the spirit speech, because it fits the broader profile of, you know, early Jewish and early Christian portrayals of the spirit. Uh, one of the things that comes up more than once in Hebrews is that the spirit has some kind of negative reaction or response to the people's disobedience. So in the Psalm 95 quote, he says, you know, therefore I became angry with that generation. Um, and then classically in the warning passage in Hebrews 10, it's, he says that, that you profane the blood of the covenant, trample the son of God underfoot and outrage the spirit of grace. Mm -hmm. And so the spirit is outraged and showing that broader picture. I introduce some of the other texts in the new Testament, like blaspheming the spirit, lying to the spirit, grieving the spirit, et cetera, that we see elsewhere that that's, that's kind of a distinctive in the new Testament though. I do think that there are some parallels in, in Jewish scripture as well. Yeah. And you bring out uh, Isaiah 63, in your book as well. Yeah. So I'm going to pitch it back to you again and say, maybe play that out a little bit. Cause I think that is part of it, right. Is when we do Trinitarian readings of scripture, when we do Christological or pneumatological readings, the new Testament authors are drawing on old Testament ideas about who Yahweh is or what, what we expect of God or who God is to actually make parallels or illustrations or analogies or whatever, you know, whatever word you want to use there. Uh, so I think that's helpful a little bit for some of these new Testament passages as well. Yeah, Isaiah 63, one of my someday projects is probably going to be demonstrating how crucial Isaiah 63 is to uh, New Testament pneumatology, because I think it's, I'm willing to say maybe the um, most influential text. And it's one of the only places in the Old Testament where the phrase Holy Spirit is used. And it's a really interesting text in a lot of different ways. So in Isaiah 63, Isaiah is uh, pointing back to the Exodus and is talking about the ways that God worked in that time. Um, in seven, I'll tell the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for, for which is to be praised. And then he begins in them. And it's in 10 that it says, yet they rebelled, that is the wilderness generation, and grieved his Holy Spirit. I think it's slightly stronger language in the Septuagint, like they angered or um, provoked. Yeah, thank you. Um, he turned and became their enemy and fought against them, which is obviously really strong language. Um, and then one final thing, and this is more just for Hebrews, but it also says that the spirit rests them. Uh, so that, of course, connects with the picture in Hebrews 3 and 4. So, yeah, I think the blaspheming um, picture, that's a really different word, um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But I do think that it relates and we see a lot of connections in some of those texts. So. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, you come into these New Testament passages, I think of Mark three and, you know, the different parallels there of Jesus is casting out demons and they say he's doing it by the power of Satan or by Beelzebul. And uh, Jesus says, you know, you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Uh, you think about as well uh, in Acts, right? Whenever Ananias and Sapphira are uh, stricken dead by the mm -hmm. Lord, it says you lied to God, you lied to the Holy Spirit. So it's that yeah. same kind of idea where you are, you're provoking the Holy Spirit to anger, right? In some mm -hmm. sense. And it's a divine, holy anger that, that contains judgment, contains, you know, the things that Yahweh does when he's provoked anger by his enemies. 
Yeah. And what's really interesting from my perspective is that in a, in a number of these texts, there's a picture of the people doing something to one person of the Trinity and the spirit being the one that responds. So that's, of course, the case in the blaspheming text where it's, you know, they're denying Jesus or the work that Jesus is doing, and it's, they're portrayed as blaspheming the spirit. And it's the same thing here in Isaiah where they're forgetting the work that God did and the Exodus, um, you know, the miracles, the parting of the sea, the manna, the water, all of that stuff. And that makes the spirit mad. And, you know, we might classically associate those works with the father, um, though, you know, Adonai more broadly. Yeah, the, you know, we, we can uh, we can do a whole sidetrack here on uh, the father's wrath toward Jesus on the cross and all that kind of stuff, too. But we probably should. <laughs> but it is that idea, right, that it is always sort of directed to it's the father who's doing this. And yet um, it is, you know, described of these others, uh, the son and spirit as well. Uh, so, yeah, Mark yeah. three, I mean, even just the word blasphemy, you know, Jesus is called uh, a blasphemer several times. Uh, by the Jewish leaders in different passages from uh, Matthew chapter nine, when he heals the paralytic and says he can forgive his sins uh, to when he says that he and the father are one in John, uh, he's called a yeah. blasphemer. So this blasphemy comes from the old Testament, this idea that you are speaking against God, you are speaking wrongly about God, you are uh, defaming God, something like that. Right. And um, mm -hmm. so you can't blast, like you can't blaspheme me, right? Like biblically speaking, I mean, Madison could, say really mean, hateful things about me, like she does on Twitter <laughs> never, all the time. Never, never would. No, no, no. Um, but blasphemy is, biblically speaking, a it's it's reserved for God. It's reserved yeah. for the way that you interact with God or the way that you talk about God. So when that comes back around to you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, well, we've got to have a conversation there about what that means, right? Or you have lied to God, you have lied to the Spirit. And there's a lot of different ways that comes about. And that's where Trinitarian theology becomes helpful as you start thinking through, well, this isn't just you've uh, denied God's work in the world or something. It's like, no, you have, you've actually, in some sense, uh, offended a person. You, you, this is a kind of personal mm -hmm. offense to the spirit because Jesus could just say, hey, you've offended me because of the work I'm doing. He's like, no, 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 actually, because uh, as you say in your book, so helpefully, um, this is, the, this is the, the spirit mediated, right? This mediated through uh, the work of Jesus. He's saying, no, 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 this is the spirit that you're insulting, right? So yeah. Jesus doesn't even claim the insult for himself, even though he's the one doing the healing. So that's kind of an interesting personhood conversation, right? About it's not just the work of God that's being insulted. It's that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Yes, his work, but also him. Yeah, I agree. I, I love it. Um, mostly because you're quoting me. No, I'm just joking. I mean, I think it's I, I think it's really interesting. You're right. It's um it's about the work of God more broadly that makes us offensive. I also, and I don't want to anthrop um make you know, anthropomorphize too much or whatever. But I also think that it's sort of a beautiful picture because uh, Jesus isn't taking offense on his own behalf, but he takes seriously the fact that the spirit of God is insulted. So it's almost like, say what you will about me, but, you know, but don't insult my father, don't insult the spirit. Yeah. So when we think more broadly about this, you know, uh, one of the questions I have for you is, as you've thought through, you've done sort of the prosopological exegesis in Hebrews, the divine discourse, and then drawing in these other passages, what are some other areas kind of in the New Testament that maybe you haven't touched on as much in your work, but that you've noticed that draws out some of these same kind of interactions between the persons, uh, the type of divine discourse that we see? I mean, the Gospels are are a place that are really ripe for this because you have the narratological depiction. And so, um, 
you more clearly see actions in in the epistles. And I'm obviously painting with a broad brush here, but in the epistles, you see more disruptive characterizations, you know, God who is this or who might be described in this way. And and some of those do take on actions. I mean, what uh, West Hill draws us out in his stuff where God is primarily characterized as the one who raised Christ from the dead. So those imply action. But in the Gospels where you have, you know, the heavens rent open and uh, and God like speaking to Jesus and the spirit descending and resting upon him. I mean, those are really fruitful passages, I think. So, um, yeah, what ways have you have you thought through or described the role of the spirit as the mediator between the father and the son or, or the work of the father and the son, these kind of things, right? Because that's, you know, I get asked that question a lot. You know, you have canonic Christology, obviously, that comes in there where it's, it's Jesus only does this by the power of the spirit, which I have right. strong, angry language toward when people say that. Um, <laughs> yes. But there is a sense in which the, the spirit is, uh, Fred talked about this on a previous uh, Church Grammar episode. Yeah, a lot I've of times this, the spirit too. is kind of absent, right? Like, it, but but there is this understood work that he's doing underneath. And if you're reading the passages in the context more clearly, you see that. So um, when you think about divine discourse, for example, you do have, like you said, the, the baptism scene, the father speaks or the transfiguration, the father speaks to the son, or you oh, have yeah. Jesus praying to the father. You don't really have a lot of the Holy Spirit said, right? But mm-hmm. he's still there. Mm-hmm. So how do you think through his mission or role or whatever you want to say there? A lot of times that's implied, um, you know, or, or we we see the spirit coming on to Jesus, obviously in the gospels, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. That's an emphasis. See that in um in acts with the early believers. So we know that it it's important <laughs> that the spirit be present, that he, and he that he is always present. So it's not constantly reiterated necessarily, but you know, obviously that's the case. So basically the short answer to your question is I haven't focused a lot on that mediatorial role. Instead, I focused on another dimension that I thought was maybe more explicit in Hebrews. And again, I think that what you're drawing out is more implicit, but the explicit dimension that I drew out is that in Hebrews, the father and son speak to one another and the spirit almost um, relays the conversation or he's the one that speaks to us and is for us. And I think that's what we see elsewhere in the New Testament as well, where you see the spirit speaking through someone um, to provide revelation. So I, you know, I think of um, the spirit as one who testifies as as something that's really prevalent and and maybe, you know, could be a a more highlighted dimension. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense because you, you know, I think was it just the other day, somebody was uh, talking about this on Twitter, you know, well, if you had this sort of idea of inseparable operations or whatever, but what do you do with this passage over here that seems to say something else, right? You know, and that's where you have to do that kind of broader understanding. Like if you read Matthew, you could assume that the Holy Spirit disappears after the baptism or after he drives Jesus into the wilderness in Matthew four, and then, Mm -hmm. oh, he's just not around for a while. Well, it's like, no, actually it's, it's, if you read it, the way that Matthew is drawing the narrative, you understand that, no, the spirit is always there. That's the point. And then you get these little highlights every once in a while, where there's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or something like that. Um, but I yeah. think that's good because there is the, uh, you know, when Peter says that the Holy Spirit, you know, the Old Testament prophets spoke by the Spirit. Well, nowhere in the Old Testament, or it's not, not, not nowhere, but it's not every time a prophet speaks, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit of the Lord or something like that, right? Right. It's just exactly. thus says the Lord. And now Peter's saying, well, no, no, that's the Holy Spirit. So again, it's a, you have to have that broader context and canonical understanding to say, okay, well, when this is happening, the Holy Spirit's got to be doing something here, right? It's not like he just goes and sits down for a while. Uh, he doesn't have a body, yeah. right? He has nothing. He can't sit down anyway. Um, but uh, he, he hasn't, he's not just kind of hanging out. So the mediatory role, I think is helpful. And it's not as clear as 
maybe some people want it to be, but I feel like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. I think this actually gets us towards the kind of methodological question around Trinitarian discussions or even like broader kind of biblical theological readings. Because of course, I mean, as a biblical scholar, and I mean, you so often hear me say, well, in this text, this is the thing that's highlighted or whatever. I mean, I've done that a couple of times today. So in Hebrews, we don't see X, we see Y. And that doesn't mean X isn't a thing. But anyways, so, you know, if we think about the gospels, as you're saying in Matthew, the role of the spirit is more muted, if you will, from the temptation on. But then in John, where Jesus is saying more, I mean, John is, you know, the like all red letters basically in, for chapters and chapters. And so we would say, okay, John, you know, Jesus is saying that the spirit is doing X, Y, Z throughout his ministry. So then we go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we might be inclined to say, well, that's not a thing for Matthew, Mark, Luke, but obviously with Trinitarian readings, with biblical theological readings, um, we would say, is it incompatible? You know, does it seem to not be the case that Jesus and the spirit are in cahoots at, you know, X moment in his life or whatever? And, you know, obviously I think he is. Well, and if, and if we take the biblical the passages we have in the Bible that give a pretty clear picture of divine inspiration, particularly the Holy Spirit's role in the inspiration of scripture and in the illumination for us, first Corinthians two places like that, that make this really clear. Um, then, uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit is testifying about himself and mediating about himself all the time, even when he's not the main character, you know, and you don't want to get into any sort of divine psychoanalysis, but it's like, you're wanting the Holy Spirit to be like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it's like, no, actually the spirit is mediating all of this to you. So that, that's something that's, it takes a little doctrinal construction, a little theological construction to be able to look back and go, okay, yeah, that's kind of what's happening here, right? Or when Jesus is casting out demons, well, on the one hand, Jesus has the power to cast out demons. We know that. Other times we see it's, well, uh, you're doing this by the power of Satan. He's like, no, 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 now you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So yeah. who is casting out demons, Jesus or the Spirit? The answer is yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So as we think about it methodologically a little bit, um, you know, one of the things I've tried to think through, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well, but um, yeah, I'm working on a little project right now on um, just how to teach the Trinity from a handful of biblical passages. This is the thing that I'm uh, avoiding and um, walking around <laughs> campus and listening to Garth Brooks and not doing anything with. But, uh, you know, when I'm walking through there, one of the things that I try to point out is kind of the two ways that we think about how to understand the Trinity in the Bible is primarily by intertextuality and looking at what are the New Testament authors doing? What claims mm -hmm. are they making about Jesus and the spirit? And these claims are always tied to who we know God to be or Yahweh yeah. to be, right? Yeah. So now it's, it's, you know, well, Jesus says that he can forgive sins. Well, we know that only Yahweh can do that. So who is this guy? Which is why the religious leaders call him a blasphemer. So they're saying, no, that's actually not, you can't do that. You're a person, you know? Part of it is you have to be able to look at it and go, okay, when the Bible is talking about the Son or the Spirit, what claims is the is the biblical author making about that person? And then you kind of say, well, you have no other option but to say, well, this is God in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. However, we got to figure out you know, what that actually looks like. You have to be able to say that. So this is why the Christian tradition has received these texts this way. This is why for 2,000 mm -hmm. years of church history, basically everybody has acknowledged this issue um, and why you have all these different heresies is because everybody recognizes there's a Trinitarian dynamic. They're just trying to figure out what to do with it. So Arius actually recognizes that there is a divine claim about who Jesus is. Now we would say he ends up being wrong and how he works that out. 
but he understands the same thing Athanasius does, which is there's something about Jesus here. There are divine things being claimed about him that we can't just pretend like aren't happening. Um, yeah. so I always tell my students, you've got the, the tradition that's receiving it and saying, okay, if you're going to disagree with 2000 years of church history, you better have a pretty good, uh, pretty good biblical reason. But yeah. also the Jewish leaders already are recognizing, like when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, and they try to kill him. Well, th they know that he's claiming to be God. And Jesus never says, whoa, whoa, whoa guys, I'm sorry. Like, wait, 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 no, you totally misunderstood me. That's not what I meant. He like doubles down. <laughs> like I love Matthew, yeah. Matthew nine. He says, uh, your sins are forgiven. And they're saying, uh, first of all, it says he basically reads their minds or perceives their thoughts and they call him a blasphemer. And he says, oh, uh, he doesn't, again, he doesn't say, no, 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 sorry. You misunderstood. He says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And so Jesus yeah. is like rubbing it in their faces, you know? So you've got, <laughs> you've got the people in the, you've got the people interacting with Jesus in the biblical text, recognizing these things about him. And you have the tradition, obviously, noticing, it, especially once the, the, the canon is sort of pulled together. So I say all that to say, when we talk about Trinitarian readings, if you look at what the biblical authors are claiming about who God is, you're left, you're left with very little options other than to say, uh, you know, and some people say, well, the biblical authors just thought he was God, but he wasn't. Okay. But you're still recognizing that the text is saying that. It's hard to get around that. Yeah, I agree. I think um, drawing out the kind of outrage from the Jewish leaders is really important. This is something that struck me in a new way, you know, probably just a few months ago, as I was reading, I think it was John 5. Because um, there are a lot of claims from uh, more critical scholars that, you know, Jesus saying, I'm the son of God, isn't that big of a deal? You know, kings would say that others would say that it's not a big deal. Well, <laughs> in John 5, they say that him saying he's the son of God, is him making himself equal to God that bothers them. So as you say, maybe it doesn't hold that significance for so-and-so or, you know, whatever, but it did for John and he's the one making the claim. So that's something that we have to take seriously. And I, the other examples that you drew out are, are really helpful as well. So if, if those claims don't mean as much as we, you know, or they, they don't mean that much, then why is some, everyone so mad? <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and again, and he, yeah, he never, you know, I, when I did my work on revelation, this is another one where there's a lot of arguments that Jesus is really just considered a chief angel or sort of just yeah. this kind of divine intermediary figure or whatever. Yeah. But you notice when John bows down to worship the angels, the angels tell him, don't do that. We're fellow servants with you. When he bows down That's to worship right. Jesus, Jesus doesn't stop him. You know, in fact, uh, yeah. that, that seems to be the only appropriate response. Right. So yeah, that's where, I mean, I, don't, I try not to be dismissive sometimes, but I'm like, come on guys. Like he's an, he's an angel. <laughs> come on. You know, like revelation. And there are some, I, I love the biblical scholars or the new Testament scholars, particularly who will, uh, who I interact with in some of my work, who will say, well, look, I think, I mean, like, uh, what's his name? Oh my gosh. Uh, James Dunn. Uh, he, at one point, now I know he's shifted a little bit over the years, but he, at one point had one where he said, basically, yeah, I mean, I don't know that the Bible's that clear that Jesus is worshiped as God. He's like, except in revelation, it's kind of hard to downplay it in revelation. Right. So sometimes I'm like, come on, like it, it's right there for us, you know? And sometimes yeah. I think people are trying, maybe trying to find ways to say something else. Cause they just can't make that claim or don't want to. I don't know. Yeah, I am thankful. I think that's where some of Wes's work is helpful. I have a, another colleague from Durham, Heather Mortensen, who who did Trinitarian work in Mark. They show that the kind of like the development argument that that Dunn in particular has kind of um, popularized, but that is so prevalent. Um, it really doesn't hold up that even in Mark and Max Botner's work here is, is also influential in Mark. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, we see a really strong portrayal of Jesus.
Jesus as God that gets picked up by the later evangelists who appropriate Mark's work. That's, uh, I'd be remiss not to mention my Dr. Vater as well, who, uh, Mike Byrne, yeah. who wrote the, the book on uh, Jesus, the divine son and Mark and sort of answering right. adop- adoptionist Christology, where he's kind of like, you know, that angle doesn't work either. You know, I, one of the things I try to try to say to you is for us, for you and I, for example, we're kind of accused of, well, you're just being confessional. Like you're just kind of, you, you have to say the Trinity is true. So now you're going to go find it. Right. Uh, Robert Jensen has the famous quote where he says, you know, you have to be careful not to scrabble around the word he uses, scrabble around in the New Testament or in the Bible to find the Trinity. Um, right. And I think I'm just at the point now where I just want to say, no, actually, the reason why I read the Bible Trinitarianly is because I, as Athanasius says, I don't know how else to do it. Like you, yeah. you have, you have, you really have to, you don't have, you actually don't have to try that hard to make the, the New Testament or the Bible a Trinitarian uh, book. You actually don't have to try that hard. The doctrine of the Trinity is not easy, but seeing the Trinitarian dynamic there is it's imp- to me, it's almost impossible to overlook. I think I agree with you because I, because I know what you mean by reading it Trinitarianly, which I love that adverb, but, uh, but I do think that seeing the Trinity around every bush and corner in the New Testament actually diminishes our doctrine of the Trinity. That if we just say like these, you know, the three characters are mentioned, boom, the Trinity, then we allow for a really anemic understanding. And I think that that leads to some of the really poor um, uh, articulations of the doctrine that we've seen in the last, well, I mean, forever, but especially in the last hundred years or whatever. Yeah, that's fair. I do like uh, Hillary and Augustine, Hillary Poitier and Augustine, both at different times, talking about uh, the baptism and the Great Commission uh, in Matthew, will both say, it's, it's Hillary or Augustine one, they both say it, but one of them says it like really clearly where they're like, uh, hey, just read that passage, that's the Trinity, stop asking questions. It's like, well, that's <laughs> yeah. easy for you to say. But then, but then, you know, they both have huge treatises on <laughs> the Trinity, so. Well, that's, what, yeah. that's what's funny with like Hillary, he says, um, the Trinity is in the Bible. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but the Trinity yeah. is in the Bible. It's super obvious. And the only reason, and we should just hide this in our hearts and meditate on it. But because the heretics keep twisting scriptures, we feel, I feel like I have to explain it. You know, I love that too. Yeah. Cause he's kind of like, I'd rather not, but if you guys <laughs> yeah. are going to keep saying that, you know, that Jesus isn't God, I guess I'll write an entire tome. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Oh. But yeah, I have a footnote in the, in the work I'm working on right now, assuming the publisher keeps it where uh, I say that, you know, we're, we're, they're basically saying, well, this is just obvious. We don't really have anything to say. And then I That's say, awesome. uh, my footnote says, I'll read it. Of course, as one of the greatest theologians the church has ever seen, that's easy for him to say. You know, That's like, yeah, it's a really easy to just kind of throw that out there. Um, but it is, <laughs> but it actually is a lot of work. So I don't want to make it sound like it's not a lot of work. But, you know, I, I just think the Trinitarian dynamic there is so clear that to me, it's you confess it and affirm it, or you have to find a way to explain it away, but you can't just pretend like it's not there. You will not read a single commentary on Revelation that doesn't deal with the fact that Jesus is being worshipped. And they might deny the Trinitarian element or whatever, um, but like nobody can get around it. So then the question is, what do you do with it, right? So sometimes my my recommendation for Trinitarian reading is just like, look at, just read it, look at it, think about it. Uh, You've got to, again, as we said, think about the Old Testament and what does the Old Testament claim about who Yahweh is and what are the New Testament authors doing with that? And I think, yeah, one of the most underrated is the Jewish leaders who very clearly, they know their Hebrew Bible better than either of us do. And they're constantly like, hey, wait a second. Like, you can't do yeah, that. You're please don't say do that. that. <laughs> we're no. Gonna, yeah, we're going to kill you. Um, <laughs> all right. Are there any, uh, any kind of just top of your head, any sort of um, 
biblical passages or big idea things in terms of Trinitarian readings that you're thinking of? I've, I've thrown you a couple of, I've thrown you some, some fastballs and softballs there, but. Um, Luke Acts is like my like growing area of interest. And so, you know, I'm inclined to, to think about that. And I think there's such a rich portrayal of the spirit there, but also just, um, I, Luke is probably like John and Luke really fight each other at this point for my, like, you know, top spot of the gospels, but Luke's portrayal of Jesus as a, an anointed one who is servant and liberator and all these different things. is just like, so good to me right now. So that plays into this. I think though, I think that there's probably like an underlying thing here that you are um, maybe subconsciously not acknowledging. No, I think no. the reason why you, I think the reason why you like Luke X so much is because Luke is the author of Hebrews. <laughs> no. Oh, are you giving up on Paul finally? <laughs> Either Paul or an associate of Paul, you know, it just narrows it down pretty quick. I'm fine with associate of Paul. <laughs> Uh, Pauline school or, or it's it's Pauline as long as we don't say it's Paul. It's Pauline yeah it depends on what you mean by Pauline well yeah. I mean Lucan that's what I mean it's Lucan who is Pauline so it all works out well that is the earliest theory I think no well actually Barnabas is but anyways go ahead I like the idea of Barnabas he's an encourager you know you can work um, yeah Levite yeah, one of the things you've helped me with, actually, I'm, I'm, I always show you about authorship at least once, but um, it is helpful to think through that we always just jump to the the, the known authors, right? Like the, the people who it could be, and it could be somebody totally different. Like we just don't know, you know, like we have the list of names that we can go by, but maybe none of those people actually wrote it. So that's always, that's been helpful to me as you've pointed that out. It's like, oh yeah, we okay. do just sort of, we sort of um, load the deck, you know, and then say, well, it must be one of these people mentioned, but yeah. Um, but anyway, it was Luke. So, all right, let's talk about academic publishing a little bit. That was something that I think people might be interested in hearing about. I don't know exactly. Again, we, we don't, we don't outline very well when we start these, uh, these podcast conversations for better or worse. I don't think we've done anything to get ourselves fired so far, which is good. I mean, I still have a job and you do so, so far so good. It might mean that our bosses <laughs> don't listen, which is fine too. Um, yeah, academic publishing. So I've been on the publishing side. I worked, you know, I oversaw the Christian Standard Bible project for four years uh, and general editor for the Christian Standard Commentary series that's coming out that I cannot convince or annoy or pay Madison enough to uh, be a part of just fine. But uh, so I've been on that side of it. And then obviously I'm going through some academic publishing now uh, with my dissertation. Um yeah. So where do you want to go with it? That was kind of your idea. So I feel like you've got something, you got something up in your brain somewhere there. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pitch it to you. Well, I pitched a lot of different ideas. You know, I was talking about the fact that um, it can be hard for people who are starting out to kind of know how to get in. It can be hard to decide what projects to pick and things like that. And I, you know, I think for people who are kind of at our stage or even, you know, even earlier or later, um, you know, deciding how to develop like a publishing program or whatever is, is a little bit tough. One, because I don't know about you, but I, ha I have this like double mentality where like part of me really thinks that, um, that this could be the last opportunity. Like that's the last time that someone's going to ask me to ever write anything. But then on the other hand, I'm like, I have way too much to do. And I wish everyone would stop talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I mean, some of that just comes with a like constant imposter syndrome or whatever. And then like realizing, okay, well, you know, my imposter syndrome is valid to some degree, you know, I have a lot to learn, but you know, I'm, I'm making my way in the world or whatever. <laughs> so. Well, you are, you are the, the only recurring guest on the world famous church grammar podcast. So 
I don't think that's really something to say there, but um, yeah. So I'm I'm making it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't, I'm not writing anymore. I'm just just coming on church grammar. Like this is my new career. <laughs> this is the new, this is the new medium, you know. So yeah. this is where it's all going anyway. Yeah, that is that you know going through kind of being on my end of it. You know, there's no way to get around the fact that part of publishing and getting into publishing is knowing people. I mean, you have supervisors who help you, you have friends, colleagues, you know, like that's just part of it. Like when I get, you know, I get uh, occasionally an email from, you know, an MDiv student or something like that, who's like, hey, how do I get into academic publishing? And I always just tell them, kick butt in your master's program, go get in a PhD program and do well and see what happens, you know, but it's just, you can't, you can't force it. There's no way, you, you know, sending blind proposals to publishers is, is all like, as somebody who worked for a publisher, it just, doesn't work. Um, very rarely. I mean, every once in a while, I'm sure there's stories out there, but I would, I'd be working our booth when I was working with the Bible translation. And I, I mean, we had, I bet we'd get five to 10 unsolicited manuscripts, every single ETS, SBL, yeah. uh, you know, SBC, you know, wherever, wherever our booth was at, at the time, uh, we would get somebody walk up with a 300 page stapled manuscript or, or bound manuscript and say, Hey, can you look at this? And you always want to be nice and gracious. And, and even I tried to look at them. I tried to say, I will look at this. I'm not going to lie to them, but it's just, yeah. it's hard. You know, the greatest strength and the greatest weakness for some people is people know who you are, right? Because so sometimes people will say, well, the reason why you get more opportunities is because you know people. It's like, yeah, but I know a lot of people who I would never ask to write with anything with me because <laughs> I know them, right? So, yeah, so it can go both ways. But um, it, the, the biggest advice to give, I think, is just like work hard, become an expert at what you do, be a good student. And, you know, try to meet people. I mean, you have to, you have to meet people. You can't just sit in a, in a shack in Idaho and, uh, you know, uh, mail out uh, random, random manuscripts to people and hope for the best. You know, there is a networking quote unquote part of it, but I've always viewed that as use uh, conferences and things to get to know people and be sharpened by them, not just to get something from them or try to try to hope, well, if I make this friend, I'll get this thing, but actually just let those relationships be where you learn, you know, and then. Yeah. Hopefully that can turn into jobs and writing and other things, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. Well, and this actually leads us to maybe the most important um, piece of advice for everybody that, that Brandon hinted at. It's don't be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> <So true. laughs> because because then knowing 100 people, you know, in uh, academic publishing won't really matter or a thousand or whatever. But yeah. yeah, it's hard to come back from, too. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, I, I am ruthless with like the young guys that are in my orbit you know, like in their oh, yeah. late 20s, PhD, like stop commenting on everything on Twitter, stop replying to people, stop calling senior scholars by their first name on Twitter. Like just just be like respectful and kind and like do your work and don't draw attention to yourself. I am a, the greatest offender. I mean, I quit Twitter for three years because I realized I was drawing too much attention to myself and I was too immature to be online. I probably still am, but I think that the three years was at least somewhat helpful. But so much of it is not like, are you a good writer? Are you smart? There are a lot of good writers and a lot of smart people out there who have never published a book and, and who don't have teaching jobs, you know, those kind of things. So that's not everything. Yeah. That's part of it. Uh, but having, uh, you know, like basic Christian character, that definitely does help. So that's, that's good to point out. <laughs> and that's not just good for your career. I think that's just no, it's like being good a good idea. <laughs> yeah. How about you just be a Christian and then see what happens? See uh, what happens. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I think it is it is helpful to think through that and, and you do have to get rejected a hundred times and you have to try and fail and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. and it is part of it. But I don't know if if you you maybe you have some tips. You've published uh more than I have for sure. I don't I don't know that there's a magic bullet. I don't know that I could say here's the magic bullet of how I uh got some, my dissertation published, for example. You know, it's the Lord's providence and 
hard work and hope for the best. But do you have any advice as, as somebody who is a world-renowned um, Hebrew <laughs> so, scholar who oh just is, is just so busy that you can't even you can't even you know uh, you can barely do this podcast. You're so busy. I mean, what, what advice do you have for people? <laughs> You're the worst. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that I think the best advice to to give is just to understand that every publisher works differently. Um, and, and every project. And so it's, you know, with so many things in academia, um, I think that, you know, to whatever extent God gives you clarity about where you want to end up, you know, whether it's X kind of school that you want to teach at, or, you know, this kind of job or this kind of realm or whatever, then, you know, look at publishers that, that fit that and, you know, that help you to get to where you want to go. And then, figure out how to publish with them or to, you know, to be in that circle. What organizations, like don't go to ETS if you want to teach at University of Virginia. Like that's just not going to be the thing that propels you. It may be really fruitful, but, you know, that can't be your like primary sphere if that's your goal. So I don't know if that makes sense. Something that I try, I've tried to encourage people into, especially when I was in publishing and I was acquiring commentaries, Bible study, contributors, whatever, um, study Bible contributors, et cetera. You know, I think that publishers are starting, especially academic publishers are starting to recognize that like Twitter followers is, is not really a great gauge because you can, you can fluff those numbers. You know, it's, it's not hard to get fake numbers. It's not hard to have, you know, if you've been on Twitter for 15 years, probably half of your followers don't use Twitter anymore. You yeah. know, so like, I think there's a lot of, I think publishers are realizing that that's sort of fool's gold to try to figure that out. I think there can be some legitimacy to it, you know, and there are some people that get a lot of Twitter followers by being controversial all the time. There's there's definitely a formula to get Twitter followers, right? It's not super difficult. It is difficult, but not super difficult to get a meeting with a publisher at, e, at an ETS or an IBR, an SBL or AAR or whatever other acronym uh, yeah. is out there. Like you can get those. And, and there's been, I think, maybe I'm wrong about this, just kind of me looking at the publishing landscape. I feel like there's been more young unknown people publishing than perhaps in a long time. You know, it used to be like the catalog was the same eight people. Uh, you know, it's always the same, like eight scholars who've been publishing for 20 years. And that's fine, too. But I do think that there's more opportunity than there used to be, partially because of the ability to interact with people online and social media and stuff like that. And I think publishers are realizing, oh, there's actually a lot of good work out there. And we've got to figure out who the next stage of scholars are and, and who's going to be contributing to the field and helping. Uh, so I, I think people sometimes get really, um, you know, uh, down in the dumps about it. And I think that there is mm -hmm. probably more opportunity than there's ever been. Yeah, do you, do you I mean, that's true? I, I do. Yeah, I think I think go for it. And I do think that I personally, I mean, I think social media can be ab the absolute worst. But I am thankful that it gives me access to people that I wouldn't know otherwise. And, and, and you know, that I can be aware of, of them and their work and everything. I mean, there are so many people that I wouldn't necessarily bump into who haven't published yet that are on, you know, on the horizon of that. And I think that that makes a difference. So it, there is an extent to which, you know, social media is for better and for absolute worst, like an equalizer. Because, you know, then it like it leads to like a death of expertise and whatever that comes. But it also means that our networks are legitimately bigger. Um, I mean, you know, in a funny way, like you and I, I think we've only we've only waved at each other on an escalator, right? Like we've never actually like been in the same room together except for that one time. Yeah, I mean, that, that is true. I mean, yeah, the, the one time that I saw you in person at ETS, you were on the phone on an escalator and, and it was like, oh, hey, and that was before we'd ever really talked that much. 
Um, yeah. and that's true. And I think even when I was, again, when I was acquiring, and I'm still in a little bit of the business of acquiring for uh, some of our CSB projects, um, I, I am the type of looking at going, okay, who are the PhD students who are out there who yeah. seem to be doing good work, who aren't jerks on Twitter, who, you know, are studying with certain people, uh, getting, the, you know, there's some institutions, you know, if they're studying with that person at that institution, they're probably going to come out all right, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's that kind of stuff where that that's always going on. And I think a lot of publishers are paying attention to that. Like I know that I've had uh, publishers reach out to me um, because of they heard my podcast or because they uh, came across some article that I don't agree with anymore that I published, you know, a couple of years ago or something like publishers are proactive too. They don't just sit in their office and wait for things to come to them. Um, that's right. Yeah. So there, I think the, the problem is, and there's no way to quantify it, is that there are people who are just trying too hard and you kind of know it when you see it and that's frustrating. That can be annoying too. I don't know. Somebody probably say that about me. So um, I, I could be the worst offender on all these things. But uh, there is something to just like, again, being a Christian, being humble and working hard. And I just think, you know, you may never publish a book, you may never get a teaching job, but the Lord can use you in a million different ways besides that. You know, the Holy Grail uh, for some people, I think, is publishing a book or getting a teaching job. And uh, some of our best scholars and some of our best pastors are people you've never heard of and never, never met. Oh, you know? yeah. So there needs to be some contentedness as well, as well in sort of what you're doing and, and whether or not you have these opportunities and not just kind of pining for something else. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this comes back to kind of God giving you clarity about where you want to be or or really, but, and that's the way I framed it, but really it should be more about where God wants you to be. Because um, we may have an, an idea of ourselves and of our own careers that just isn't going to happen. No, it's true. And I mean, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm self-aware enough to know that it's easy for you and I to say, we both have teaching jobs and we both have yeah, opportunities absolutely. to publish. So it's easy for us to say, but we both have also been the master student, you know, who wants to get a PhD, who wants to write, who's like, what do I even do? No, nothing's ever going to happen. I'm never going to get a teaching job. Yeah. Who gets teaching jobs? Nobody gets teaching jobs. Uh, why should I do a PhD? What a waste. You know, like we, uh, I think you and I have <laughs> had those conversations in our own minds before and we've struggled with yeah. that. Oh yeah. We have friends who have, so, yeah. you know, yeah. So it's kind of like whenever people will say like, well, a married guy can't give somebody who's single advice. I'm like, well, that guy was single at one point, right? Like, it's not like he's been married since he was seven. <laughs> so like, you know, I think you and I have been through that. And, and so I want to be encouraging about it. Just say like, oh yeah, that was something somebody told me in my master's program. They were like, work hard, take the opportunities that come, uh, you know, don't try to, and I, I published a couple of things too fast that I regret doing now. I wish I had sort of been more patient and just done my, put my head down and worked. Yeah. Um, so I try to encourage people to do that. Put your head down and work, do a good job, get into a program that you want to get into, study with, with somebody who's going to help you, you know, become the scholar or, the, or the, the theologian or whatever that you want to be. And then, you know, let the, let the, let the Lord work out the rest. Amen. So. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, all right, give, give, uh, give three tips. You are, um, as one of my friends put it recently, if I could learn how to write as clear and well as Madison Pierce, uh, that I would be happy. So, um, and it's That's true, you are, you are a good writer and a, and a clear scholar. So give some, give some closing writing advice to people who are writing oh seminary papers, academic <laughs> papers, who want to be a world-renowned Hebrew scholar like you. What kind of advice do you give for, for writing? Okay, well, this is completely off the top of my head. So Lord knows. <laughs> One is reading out loud. Every, every single thing that I've ever published, I've read out loud over and over again. And when, when I hear it, I realize, okay, if I can't get through the sentence without stumbling audibly, then the reader's probably going to have trouble too. It also means that because in my particular 
the career. Like I do a lot of presenting and stuff. I think it's made me a better presenter because I can read, you know, I read my work a lot. And so it's a little more natural for me. And I, I, I also like, I have a theater background and whatever. So that helps too. <laughs> uh, read good things um, and emulate, you know, authors that you admire. One of the, I hate, I hate, hate, hate. Like even to this day, I hate writing introductions and conclusions. I hate it. So, and when I was writing my um, introductions to some of my chapters and my thesis, especially like the very first cha chapter, like the introduction, introduction, um, I read, I went to my chat, to my shelf and I picked up all the books that I remembered being like elegant prose, you know, things I thought were admirable. And I read the introductions and I said, what is this person trying to do to like bring me in and to interest me? And I tried to do that. And, um, and so I think that not just, you know, reading a lot, but actually thinking about why do I think this is good? And to what extent does my writing reflect this? I think it makes a difference. And I don't know, just try to be clear, don't try to be, or try to try to be clear, don't try to sound smart. I, I mean, I, I think that's another thing. What this, um, I may have said this before on the podcast, so forgive me if I have, I don't, I don't think I have. Um, but one of the things that Francis said to me one time is I was writing and I was just assuming a lot. And especially working in Hebrews, you know, this is something that's not wise, um, because unfortunately, uh, to to my you know utter despair, um, people aren't as interested in Hebrews as they should be. And so, you know, Francis tried from for a very long time to make sure that my project would be interesting to as many people as possible, um, and I'm thankful because that has gotten interest outside of Hebrews. Um, but he he said, you know, if those people are going to be reading this and you're assuming that everyone has Hebrews memorized, that's not going to work very well. So he said, try to imagine a stupid reader. And then he walked it back a little bit. He's like, oh, maybe not stupid, but inattentive. Like, imagine the person who's reading a paragraph and then somebody interrupts them. You know, an office mate comes and stands in their door and bothers them. Um, and then they pick up the book again and they have to, you know, keep going. Like they haven't been able to give it the attention that you want. It's, it's your fault to a degree if they're not able to track with you. And so, and that's been really meaningful too. So I do a lot of signposting, a lot of clarifying, a lot of even block quotes or like, you know, recapitulating or whatever that, you know, for some people that are really, really bright and able to track, you know, they think, oh, this is boring and redundant and whatever. But I hope that for the average reader, it's been helpful. Yeah, for most of us mere mortals, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to have something repeated to you three or four times, you know, or a point being yeah. reinforced or, or or made. So, yeah, yeah, I have no good writing yeah. advice. I'm 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 uh, I'm the worst. I'm I'm right now like you know three weeks away from a deadline that I'm uh, terrified I'm not going to meet you can uh, do because it. I can't write. So, uh, my my advice is don't be like me, whatever that means. So. That's not about writing well, though. That's like you're just in a, a rut, and I'm I I mean that's hard to get out of. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where the, the, the publishing deadline is the thing that motivates you. But like, I think I'm still suffering from post-dissertation where the stakes don't feel as high anymore. And so now yeah. it's like, you know, just getting myself, uh, you know, uh, back on it. So yeah. uh, maybe one of these days we'll get there. But Amen. All, right, all right, Madison, hopefully that was helpful for, for some of you. Trinitarian Readings, Academic Publishing. I mean, what more could you want in a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> all right, thanks, Madison. Ooh. Thanks, Brandon. See you